Well, for anything unfamiliar to us, we often use our imagination to complete the picture, so to speak. We use bits of information that we gather uh, and piece them together to make this big picture of our imagination. Today, with the help of technology, Google, search, and things like that, um, it, it is actually easier to do this. During COVID, I remember um, when we cannot visit museums, museums around the world put their catalog, the whole 3D uh, virtual tour of the museum online, so we can actually tour museums around the world <clears throat> at the comfort of our own study. We just need computer and, and the internet. Now, regardless how amazing it is we research and put together this you know, picture, to complete the picture, it is still our own construction of reality. It is not quite the real deal until we actually experience it ourselves in person. Now, for example, in, in regards to a place, for example, that you never visited, say a Disneyland, they say it's the happiest place on earth. You, you can only trust what people say about Disneyland and you can look, at, look up the pictures. Perhaps you may look at videos online when people go through Disneyland. You piece together what you may find online and from what people say. But not until you visit Disneyland yourself. You, um, until you do that, it's just a mere imagination and, and it's just a mere construct in your head based on what you heard, what you read, um, what you saw on the internet. Now, not only that we use that kind of research, imagination, put things together for, to picture a place, uh, a destination, we also do that with a person. <clears throat> Perhaps we imagine uh, what it would be like to be in the presence of, uh, of someone famous. Um, recently, Poppy and I went to watch um, Hamilton, the show. Perhaps, you know, some of you, if you've been there watching something like that, you would imagine what it would be like to live in that time. Or be sitting next to someone famous and conversation. We, we are in the book of Exodus. I, I, for one, have imagined what it would be like to have conversation with Moses. And some of us Christians perhaps have done this, what it would be like to have a conversation with Jesus, to share a table, a meal with Jesus. So now think, think about that. Think about a famous person that you love to meet in person. So what you do is you piece together, you research about this person, you try to get to know what the, this person is like, perhaps from reviews, from what people say, from books, now, don't get me wrong, this imagination is a great tool, but it comes with limitation, you see. See, it is a great tool because, for example, reading biography books, which I like, uh, you meet people you would never in a million years be able to meet. Perhaps that person is dead. Like, there's no way we, we could have met George Washington or Nelson Mandela or Mother Teresa. If you never met them, they're, they're long gone. Or... Alexander the Great, Martin Luther, just to name a few. See, reading books not only allow us to be able to know per a person, but 
it allows us to travel to places that we would have impossible to visit in person. For example, first century Jerusalem. We can go to Jerusalem now, but we cannot be at in first century Jerusalem or any of the ancient civilization. Reading books and research help us travel there. That's why it's so amazing to be able to do that. But it comes with disadvantage and problems. It, it's not without lacking. One obvious reason is our imagination and what people say about that person or that place could be inaccurate. One person could say it's amazing. For you, it may not be so amazing. And, and we all experience this when people say, oh, go to this place, the food is good. And you try it, you say, well, meh, you know, it's average. You got to try it yourself. So it may not be 100% accurate until you experience it yourself. See, for, for, for many things, that does not matter. And it's actually a good thing to not having to experience yourself, especially if it's a bad thing. People say, don't go there, don't, don't do this because it's, it's terrible. It saves you time and money and energy to not having to experience it yourself. So they're good things. They are good things to not experience yourself. Learning from people's mistake, you read about their mistake, that helps yourself to not make the same mistakes. So that's a good thing. However, for something that is a matter of life and death, don't you want something accurate? It's not just a mere construct of your imagination that you put together. Just imagine this. You need, you need to, to get a surgery done. And your surgeon happened to say, well, you know, I've never, never been to medical school, but I, I watch a lot of YouTube how people do this. Would you trust that surgeon to do a surgery, to perform a surgery on you? Perhaps not. Uh, because there are things in life that you've got to experience in person for it to be real. How about God when we come or experience an encounter with God? Is God just a mere imagination construct in our head that we piece together? Is that what we have today? How can we know God? Is it just, ah, oh, Pastor Ferdy say this about God, so yeah, so that's a little bit. Um, I've read somewhere in the book that says about this, the media says about God, my friends say this about God, and you put that together. Um, see, the danger with that is because people can say anything they like, uh, just like, you know, the food is great. Some other people say the food is terrible. Another say, well, it's okay. With God, our, our society, we, we heard many things about the assessment of our God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. People say, if God is real, if God is real, why would there be so many suffering in the world? If that's what we receive, we say, okay, well, there's so many suffering, that means God is not real. Or if God is real and there's so many sufferings, then God is not good. Or we say, if God is loving, why would he ever send people to hell? Therefore, there's no hell if God is loving. So we could basically make up anything, put together in our own imagination of this God in our head, whatever, whatever we want it to be. 
So recently, we, you know, we have a pastor being interviewed on the morning TV news. The host of the interview clearly has no theological training, but made multiple theological statements about God of his own imagination. And now when you hear something like that, the, you know, oh, sounds smart, sounds, sounds fair, that means that is true. But is that right? So for something as important, my point is this, for something as important as eternal life and death, I'm not talking about just death on this physical body right now on earth, but eternal death, eternal damnation, and eternal life, we better be sure of what we believe. We better be sure of what we know about who God is and what He say He is, of who He say He is. Now, throughout the history of humanity, so society have tried and will continue to try to redefine our God and imagine what God is like according to their heart's desire. That's what we do when we define God without the directions of the Bible or what, you know, the way God revealed himself. We pretty much construct God to our own desire. We want a God who is loving and not send people to hell. In other, way, in other words, we want God who, so, who loves us that will not punish us for our sin. That whatever we ask of Him, He will give it to us because we want it. So we want that kind of God, you see. We don't know this God, but we, so we made it up in our own head and our own imagination. This is, this is not a new problem that we face today. This is, you know problems from, from the very beginning. So let's, let's look at the book of Acts. I'm going to read from the book of Acts, chapter 17. Now, we don't, we don't have slides, so you've you got you to gotta use your phone, physical Bible, uh, electronic Bible, whatever it is you can. Acts 17, verse 22 to 27. So Acts 17, straight after the gospel, the four gospel, you get Acts. So in the New Testament, Acts 17, 22 to 27. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Man of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of, of, of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. So Paul says, you worship God that you don't know. Let me tell you, God that has revealed Himself. God that created everything that you know of. God that is not unknown, that is not far, but God that can be known and God that is near. And that's the God of the Bible. So if God is near, God can be known then we don't have to make it up in our own imagination what God is like and you know, who He is, you see. See, we do not have to worship God 
the God of our own imagination, or or what the society tell us God should be like. We can worship the real God. See, imagining when it comes to God is not necessary because the Bible gives us clear answers of who He is. So how can we know God? And today's passage, we're going to look at Exodus 25. I'm going to split it into three sections, how we know God through three things. The first one, we know God through His provision. The second thing, we can know God through His holiness. And finally, we can know God through His mercy. Provision, holiness, and mercy. God's provision, the first one. So last week, we saw in chapter 24 how God descended on Mount Sinai. So verse 16, Exodus 24, verse 16 says this, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So it says there, God dwelt on Mount Sinai when, when, when they met with his people, and then he called up uh, Moses to have meeting with him. Now, there's limitation if, if our God only dwell on Mount Sinai. We're far from Mount Sinai. Um, most of us perhaps haven't even been to Mount Sinai. I haven't. Um, it, it's a problem. This is the God that it's, it's hard to know if he's just on Mount Sinai. Or even, even on Mount Sinai, not everyone go up to the top. Remember the different group of peoples? Only Moses and perhaps Joshua assisting Moses up to a certain point, climbing up Mount Sinai. See, what's the solution to this? For all the God's people to know him when his dwelling is on Mount Sinai. Well, he gives us a solution here in chapter 25. God provides instruction for his people to build the tabernacles where God can dwell. And this tabernacle can move where God's people move. They don't have to climb. They don't have to go to Mount Sinai to meet with God. So let's look at that, Exodus 25. We, we read this before. Exodus 25, verse 1 to 9. But I think it's, a prop, it's relevant for us to do it again. So let me read that quickly from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution for every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution for me and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold silver and bronze blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen goat's hair ten ram skins goat skins acacia wood oil for the lamps spices for the anointing oil and the for the fragrant incense onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture you shall make it. Um, the tabernacle that God gave instruction for his people to build speaks about his presence. Instead of dwelling on Mount Sinai, God planned to dwell on the tabernacle. This is God's presence. The reason is, stated out in verse 8 and 9, is that, that I, God says that I might dwell in their midst. 
That's the purpose of it. God wants to be close to His people. Like the Apostle Paul said, you worship God to the unknown. Well, God has revealed Himself. He's God that can be known. He's God that is near. God who wants to be close to His people. You know, perhaps some of us have friends in high places. Uh, The problem with many people, important people, friends in high places is a lot of people want to be close to them, but they don't want to be close to many people. But God, the Creator, the Bible says He wants to be close to His people. So what does it say about this? It talks about God's provision, uh, this first part here. Uh, I want to jump a little bit about this. To, uh, we, we're going to talk about the mercy seat last. So we're going to talk about God's provision in this tabernacle setup in, the, in, the, in one of the furniture called the table, the table for the bread, table of showbread. Okay? Um, let's read from... Okay, before we do that, when we talk about provision... How, you know how God opens this? Like It needs a lot of resources to build this tabernacle and all the furniture. God says in verse 1 and 2, this is very interesting. Um, you may have missed this. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. God asked for resources. That's the first thing. Not that God needed help. God owns everything. But God wants to check the heart of his people. This is a heart check request. When God asks something from his people, this is a, not a demand, it's a heart check. <clears throat> it says, from every man whose heart moves him, they are not under compulsion to give. It's a heart check. One commentator writes this, God does not force you to worship or give to him, but he does call for it. God calls for our worship. God calls for our giving. But He does not force us to do it. Now, why is it so? Why, does God, why, why did I say this is a hard check? It is because the provision, the resources that they're supposed to give to God were from God. So remember back in Exodus 3, um, before they leave Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. Those are what God gave them. So the provision that God provided them, now God says, if your heart moves you, give. So that's what, what, what it says there. Now, these are, so when we give, the same thing for, for us, when we give to God, we can only give to God for what God has first given to us. So when we give to God with, with our time, God gives us the time. When, God, when we give God with our energy, well, God gives us the health and the energy. When we give to God with our finances, it was God himself who blessed us with our finances. Now, to show God's provision, to remind God's people of his provision, God instructed them to build this table for bread. Now, in, on that table, there'll be, later on, it will be explained there, there are 12 loaves of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So that bit is in Exodus 25, verse 23 to 30. 
So let me read that from verse 23. The Lord says this, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around its handbreadth wide, around it a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with this. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls and with which you to pour drink offering. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence of the table before me regularly. These breads are to be replaced. In fact, it says uh, weekly, and the breads are to be consumed by the priests. Now, the, the table for this bread, and the bread are to be placed in, in the tabernacle in the section called the holy place, um, just outside the most holy place. So inside, there'll be the most holy place, and then outside that, there's the holy place. This is where the table and the bread will sit. Now, the bread, it says, is the, the bread of presence. It reminds them the presence of God, the provisions of God in the life of his people, in the life of Israelites. He's the God who sustained them and provides them thus far, and he will continue to do so as he close, being close to them in the tabernacle as they journey into the promised land. Now, in building the tabernacle, it shows God's desire, right, to be, to be wanting to be close to his people. Um, but God's people will see they, they want to push God out from, from their lives. God's want to be close to us. Unlike human being, it's the famous and the rich and the powerful one, the one that want to push their less, less rich and less famous friends out of their life. In the life of God's people, it is God's people who want to push God out of their life. And that's what we sometimes experience in our life, Christians, as well. We say in our hearts, perhaps not out loud, that God, just give me some space. There's areas in my life that, that I want to I enjoy, I want to look after myself. Just like a teenager, we acted with God who put a sign outside their door and say, keep out, do not enter. That's what we do sometimes with God. Perhaps not in, in all areas of our life. Perhaps in just one part of our lives. We say, keep out, God. Give me some space. But God, in his tabernacle design, he said he want to be close to us. So that's the first thing. We learn about God's provision and God's presence in his people. That's who God is. And the second thing is we want to learn this morning is God's holiness. How do we know God through his holiness? He reveals himself to his people that he's a holy God. Um, let's, let's look at that on um, verse 31. This is where God says you must make a lampstand of pure gold. So verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cup, 
its calyxes and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And God goes on to explain how this has to be constructed, this lampstand. So like the table of bread that we just read before, the lampstand should also be placed in the holy place, just outside the most holy place. The lampstand is to be made of pure gold. In fact, they say it's about a talent, right? A talent of pure gold. That's 25 kilo, 30 kilogram of gold. And pure olive oil will be used to keep the light burning on the lamp 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the lampstand symbolizes God's presence, not only God's presence with them, with the people, but also His holiness, that He's pure. So what does it mean with the lampstand that God's presence, God's holiness for us? How does it apply to us? It means this. When we want to approach God, if we are to worship God and approach God, it must be on God's term, not on our terms. The holiness of God speaks of a holy God who want to be close to His people, yet not on our terms, but on God's terms. Sometimes we want all the benefit to approach God and be in the presence of God, but with our own terms, what we like to do. But the holiness of God speaks of God who say, if you are to approach me, you must approach me rightly according to what I say. Now, when it comes to our terms, we, we're living in a time where we like to rebel, we like to create our own rules. We, we see this even how we play board games and and card games. We know the rules, perhaps we read it and said, that's, that's too complicated or that's not exciting enough. We, we create our own rules, right? We do that all the time. Just for example, the popular card games Uno. Everyone create their own rules with Uno. Uh, if you play Uno before, when you play draw two or draw four, what do you do? You add draw two or you add draw four so they keep piling. That's against the rule. The rules say if you get draw two, you must draw two. You can't stack draw two. You can't stack draw four. But we like it. We create our own rules. People create their own rules with Monopoly. Original rules is too long. We say, you know, we, you just, we just come up with rules to make it more interesting for us. And that's how often, that, that is how we too often approach worship of God. We create our own rules. Perhaps we say, God, this is too complicated. If I have to do this to come to you, this is just too hard. But God is a holy God. And if we are to approach a holy God, we must come to Him in His own terms. We don't make it up because He is holy. The third thing, you know, I'm going really quickly, right? So a couple of reasons. First, I don't want the food to be burned here in my house. So that's the first reason. That's a clue for Poppy to check the oven. Um, also, I'm a bit hungry. So, Point number three, the last point. Finally, perhaps this is the most important furniture in, in the tabernacle. And perhaps it's the most well-known as well for, for, for Christians. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And this is to be placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle. Only the high priest can enter. So holy to the point that rumors said the high priest would go in once a year 
with rope tied onto one of his leg. So that because if the high priest did not prepare himself right and approach a holy God and would be dead when he go in and meet God, they will be able to drag him out dead, drag his dead body out without having to enter the most holy place. They take this seriously. The Ark of the Covenant will be placed in there. Once a year, the high priest will go in not empty-handed, bearing gift, bearing a sacrifice, atoning for the sins of the people. So that we can read from verse 10 onwards. Let me, let me start reading from verse 10. Chapter 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the holes into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The reason they do this is so they can carry the ark without touching the ark. All these rings. Because if you touch the ark, you'll be dead. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And they shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy, so 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them. And on the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall be spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their face one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark shall you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There, at the ark of the covenant, at the mercy seat, God says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, in the, in the most holy place from the mercy seat, Moses will meet and speak with God. The Hebrew word here for mercy seat, if you, if you use ESV, you, you, you'll find a footnote that says kava. Because the, the word for mercy seat, kaporet in Hebrew, means atonement cover. It's used as the cover for the ark, you see. It's also a symbol to cover for the people's sin, the mercy seat. It's a covering for the people's sin. So on the day, once a year on the day of atonement, high priest would come in on behalf of people and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, the laws and the requirements of God's law, all of them were satisfied. 
and the law's penalty fulfilled by the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat to cover for people's sin. Now, without this, sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy God. They will have to be destroyed. For this to happen, blood must be spilled. In the Exodus period, in those days, animal blood must be spilled. The people who deserve to be punished for their disobedience, the people of God, because of the mercy seat, because of the animal blood that are sprinkled on the mercy seat, the animal took the punishment for their disobedience and sin, and they were spared from the punishment. However, even with the animal blood, the people, if we read carefully, cannot even approach God directly in person. They have to approach God through a mediator, through a high priest. Now, what does it mean then for us? How does this apply to us today? You see, we, we, we love to be a hero in our own story, don't we? All of us like to be a hero in our own story. We like to take credit for what we achieve, what, what we have in our lives. Um, we don't like to be helped as much for being seen as being helpless or useless. Now, the mercy seat teaches us this, that it teaches us that in the presence of God, we are exactly that, that we are exactly that, we are helpless, that we need help. And we don't like the, this idea, modern people don't like this idea that we are helpless and that we need help. That's why we like to be the hero in our story. We don't like the idea that we need a mediator, we need a middleman. You know, back in the days, we cannot buy direct. We have to go through the middleman because the middleman know the manufacturers. We don't. These days, we want to go straight to the source. See, we need, the Bible says, when it comes to our sins or our disobedience, we need a mediator. We need blood to be spilled to cover for our sin and for our disobedience. That's what the Bible reveals to us. That might not be, that might not sound good to us or something that we are familiar with or something that we like to hear, but that's how God revealed himself, that he's a holy God. At the same time, He's a merciful God. Because at the mercy seat, while blood must be spilled for the sin of the people, God show His mercy towards the people. That's the people in the Old Testament. What, how about us today? We, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant. We don't have high priests who will cut up animal and sprinkle animal blood on the mercy seat to cover for our sin. So what does, how does this apply to us today? Well, three things. Uh, the first thing is, well, it's always done in fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. But this is how Jesus fulfilled that in three ways. The first thing is, Jesus said he's the bread of life. The table for the 12 loaves of bread, Jesus said to them in John 6, 35, John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When we are tempted to depend on our own provision, 
God says, I am your provision. I am the bread of life. Any other resources, you may be successful, you may be wealthy, you may have lots of resources. Even that, they will run dry. And God says, whoever comes to me, I'm the bread of life, will never hunger again. Perhaps you have enough wealth to carry you till you die. But how about beyond death? Can your resources do anything for you then? Only the bread of life that we found in Jesus can help us there. All the resources that we rely on, depend on, are intelligent, our parents, our children, our intellect, they will one day be useless and one day no longer satisfy us. And one day we no longer serve what it's supposed to do. Yet Jesus offer us a better bread that whoever comes to me, Jesus said, shall not hunger. The message for us is simple here. As Jesus is the bread of life, don't settle for less. We love to settle for less when there is abundant being offered here in Jesus Christ. And the second thing is, not only Jesus is the bread of life, Jesus is the light of the world. The lampstand, the golden lampstand, lamp, lamp, lampstand can only light up the tabernacle, the place, the holy place. But Jesus is the light of the world. In John 1, verse 4 to 5 says this, In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Now, when we shine in our life, when we perform, when we do well with our life, with our intelligence, God-given intelligence, God-given provision, when we shine, when we do well, God is saying, we are not to shine our own light. We are to shine God's light. We are not to shine our, or broadcast our own glory, but to do that in such a way that will glorify God. We are to shine God's glory in and through our lives. You are you and I are God's representative. Not only in what you do, but in what you say. In everything that you do, in everything that you say, you are God's representative. When Jesus said He is the light of the world and we are to shine His light, we are to glorify Him in everything that we do. Not for our own benefit, but for the fame of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16 says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Put on a stand and, give, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that, this is the reason, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. People ought to see that our generosity is because of God. We should pass the glory back to Him. Not our own glory, but the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the second thing, Jesus as the light of the world. Finally, the third thing, Jesus is the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the centerpiece of the tabernacle that sits 
in the most holy place where only the high priest can come in once a year after long preparation. Jesus said in John 1.14, well, this is the Gospel of John. John says and write this down about Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Familiar with that word, dwell? God says he dwelled on the Mount Sinai and he said, build the tabernacle, build the Ark of the Covenant that I may dwell among my people. And here it says, John 1.14, the word become flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus dwelt. The word dwell can also, people say, not only Jesus dwelt, Jesus tabernacle among us. So in the wilderness, the tabernacle is the place for God's people to offer sacrifice for their sin. The mercy seat, animal blood was sprinkled on it. Now in Jesus, he was the sacrifice to atone for our sin today. Romans 8, not Romans 3, Paul says this in verse 23. To 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. In Egypt, God passed over the Israelites' houses because they have smeared the animal blood on the doorposts of the house. Here we see God himself, the Son of God himself, Jesus, being put forward as the propitiation so that our sin will be passed over by God. Now this word propitiation is a very important word. Um, the Greek word, for mercy seat. So mercy seat in the Old Testament is in Hebrew. But there's a Greek translation of the Hebrew text called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, in Septuagint translation of the mercy seat, the, word, the Greek word there for the mercy seat is the same word that we see here that describes Jesus as the propitiation. So, the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant is now Jesus in the New Testament. And that's the gospel. The gospel is this. You cannot attain God's forgiveness on your own terms, with your own strength, with your own goodness. You need a mediator. You need someone else to do that for you. In this case, it says you need God's propitiation in the form of the Son of God Himself who died for you so that you don't have to die. Now, this is very against the culture that we're in today because the irreligious group of people today would say, I can do whatever I want. I, I... I, I don't need God's approval. I don't need anyone's approval, in fact. I'll do what I do. 
And there's even uh, an ad- advertisement slogan that is very popular that people use today. say, you do you. I do me. That's irreligious. I do whatever I want. No one can tell me what to do. But even the religious people of our days got the gospel wrong because they say, well, I'll, I'll do good. I'll obey God's law. And perhaps only then I will gain God's forgiveness. That's what religious people do, but that's not the gospel, you see. The gospel says, Jesus came to be my propitiation. Therefore, I can finally do good. I can finally do what is pleasing to him and acceptable to him. Because before, be, without the blood of Christ, all that we do will not be good or pleasing to God. The Bible says even our best effort of righteousness are like filthy rags, soil dirty rags. That's our best effort. So that's the gospel. When you see the mercy seat, when you see how God revealed himself in the furniture, in the layout of the tabernacle, you see God's son, Jesus, as the propitiation for your sin and my sin. God longs to dwell with his people. But we don't have the tabernacle. We, we're definitely far from Mount Sinai. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You know that language of God dwell on Mount Sinai and that God dwell on the tabernacle? Now in Jesus, Paul says, God dwell in you. How close our God want to be with us? As close as he is now living in each and every one of us. So today, if you're a Christian, this should be assuring, this should be encouraging that God himself dwells in you. He's not a far distance God who is not related to us, who doesn't care about us, who is just judging us when we get things wrong or rewarding us when we get things right. No, he lives and dwells within us. So what it means is this. If you're a Christian this morning, you have God's provision in your life. If you look at your life, you may may not think that way. How can you say that I have God's provision? Look at me. But God says you have Him in you. You have God's provision in your life. You have His holiness in your life. It may not seem like your life is a life of holiness, but God dwells in you. You have His holiness, not yours. You also have His mercy. So that whenever you fall short, we can always come back and return to Him. Because He has atoned for your sin and my sin. He is the propitiation for our sin. Let us pray.